Chapter Ten of The Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. Mrs. Heath looked at the little array of coins set out upon her lodger's breakfast tray, and took them almost reluctantly into her fingers. "'That's right, isn't it, Mrs. Heath?' Bliss asked, with an attempt at cheerfulness. Nineteen and sevenpence, and little enough for all you've done for me.' She looked at him doubtfully. "'The amount's quite correct, sir,' she said. "'But if you'll pardon my making the remark, what about yourself?' "'That ain't left you much in your pocket for your dinner or such like.' Bliss jingled three pennies and two halfpennies in his trousers' pocket with great effect. "'I've got enough for dinner at any rate,' he assured her, "'and I have a sort of feeling that I shall get a job to-day.' Mrs. Heath sighed as she took up the tray. "'If you'd like to leave a shilling or two out of the rent, sir,' she began. "'Not on your life,' Bliss interrupted. "'It's Monday to-day, Mrs. Heath, and Monday was always my lucky day.' "'Shall you go round to Smithson's again, sir?' Mrs. Heath inquired. Bliss left off jingling his money. The lowest fee payable at Smithson's was half a crown. "'I'm—' "'Not quite sure,' he answered dubiously. "'They sent me off on a lot of useless errands. "'I rather thought of strolling round and chancing my luck.' "'Never thought of trying one of them labour bureaus, I suppose, sir?' Mrs. Heath inquired. "'Jolly good idea,' Bliss replied, taking up his hat. "'I'm sick of Smithson's, anyway.' He went down the stairs whistling— though his footsteps dragged a little as he turned into the street. It seemed to him that he had lived through an eternity of ugly, cheerless days. His environment depressed him continually. Curiously enough, much of his nervousness had departed, but it had given place at times to a genuine weakness. The thought of that long chain of days to come seemed sometimes intolerable. He presented himself at the nearest Labour Bureau, and started away from it a few minutes later with an address on a piece of paper, and a rival applicant in hot pursuit. The latter, however, became associated with a street broil on the way, and was delayed by the subsequent uh, festivities. Bliss, therefore, reached the small greengrocer's shop alone, and was interviewed by a bold, untidy-looking female, the remnants of whose good looks were painfully affected by the meagreness of her habiliments. She paused in her task of opening a sack of potatoes as Bliss entered, a little out of breath. "'What you want?' she demanded. "'Are you Mrs. Mott?' Bliss asked eagerly. "'I've come from the Labour Bureau about the job.' The woman stood upright and, with her arms akimbo, eyed him up and down. "'I'm Mrs. Mott right enough,' she admitted. "'But I don't know as you'd suit. You don't look as though you could lift a sack of feathers, much more a sack of potatoes.' 
"'I can lift as much as most men of my size and weight,' Bliss assured her. "'I can drive a cart, too, which I understand is one of the considerations.' The woman scrutinized him curiously. It was only a few days since he had left the employ of Mr. Cockrell, and the attire which would have amazed his friends in Piccadilly was distinctly neat in Poplar. "'Don't seem to me as though you'd be able to tackle the job,' she grumbled. "'There's more to do than driving round folks' houses and flirting with the servants.' "'I'm afraid,' Bliss confessed. "'I cannot say I have held a similar position, but if you'll tell me what to do, I'll do my best. I can promise you that I will not waste my time in the uh, manner you suggest.' "'Where was you last?' the lady asked turning a little way, and completing the buttoning of her gown with an affectation of unconcern. "'I was light porter in the employ of a gentleman named Cockerell,' Bliss replied. "'Well, there's not much light portering about this job,' Mrs. Mott assured him. "'Twice a week you've got to be with the cart in Covent Garden at four o'clock in the morning.' "'I have often been up at that hour,' Bliss murmured, "'even in Covent Garden.' She looked at him thoughtfully, struggling all the time to conceal her marked predisposition in his favour. "'Perhaps you might do,' she said doubtfully. "'You see, I'm in a bit of a hole. My man's left me sudden-like, gone off without a word, the beast, and here am I with the business on me hands, and no one to feed the pony or nothing. You must allow me to do that for you, whether you engage me or not.' Bliss ventured. "'What sort of wages might you be wanting?' the woman inquired. Bliss hesitated. Uh, "'What do you think of giving?' he asked. "'You get a bed in the loft at the back,' she explained. "'It's nothing much of a place. If the weather comes colder, I doubt as you couldn't sleep in the house. And your dinner in the middle of the day. I don't promise nothing else.' but if there's a bit of a meal going in the evening and you're round, why, you're welcome. And fifteen bob a week. "'I'll try it, if you please,' Bliss decided promptly, glancing over his shoulder to be sure his rival was not approaching. "'It's a new sort of job to me, but I'll do my best.' Mrs. Mott nodded. "'If you come this way,' she said shortly, lifting the flap of the counter, I'll take you through to the back of the shed. Then you can feed the ponies. There's a load of these ear taters to take down to the Marlin Road as soon as I've finished sorting them. Bliss passed through a hideously untidy sitting-room, on the table of which were the remnants of a long-completed meal and a jug of beer three parts empty. The woman hesitated. Have a sup? she asked. Uh, thank you very much. Bliss replied. She divided the remainder of the beer into two glasses, and was obviously much impressed by the manner in which Bliss drank her health. "'I dunno,' she said despondently, "'as this job will suit you. They're mostly a rough lot down here, and if you don't get on with them up at Covent Garden, they knocks you about something frightful.' I'm fair sick of the rough doings, and I'm not saying as it isn't a treat to have someone round who don't look as though he'd be supping beer and wanting to fight all day long. 
My old man was a fair terror right up to the end. This way. She led him past an unappealing-looking kitchen into a tiny backyard, at the further end of which was a tumble-down shed. "'You'll find the pony there, and the food,' she told him. "'Also the harness and the trolley. "'If you'll just feed him, I'll get on with the sorting.' Bliss spent the next half-hour feeding and grooming a dejected-looking pony. At the end of that time he glanced round to find his employer leaning in a conversational manner over the half-door. "'And you're at your work than I expected,' she admitted tolerantly. "'You'll make the beast vain if you get combing him about like that.' Bliss desisted from his labours. "'What you looking for now?' she asked. "'I was looking for a tap and a bit of soap,' Bliss replied. "'Any place where I could get a wash.' "'What you want to wash in the middle of the day for?' she demanded suspiciously. Bliss remained speechless. The question seemed unanswerable. She drew a little way from the door. "'There's a tap in the back kitchen,' she said with mild sarcasm. "'Come on, I'll show it to you. Be careful you don't get your boots muddy in the yard. Want to brush your hair, too?' Bliss laughed good-humouredly. "'I'll harness up the pony first he decided. After all, it doesn't matter much, only, you see, the last job I was in, my employer was rather particular. "'Makes a body feel quite comfortable,' Mrs. Mott declared, feeling about for any more stray buttons. "'Bring you round a pony to the front, and I'll help you load up.' Bliss obeyed her instructions. In about half an hour's time they had the cart loaded. Mrs. Mott, a little breathless from her exertions, stepped back upon the pavement, and produced from some mysterious portion of her attire a small leather purse. "'You'll get Bill Simons to sign the receipt you've got with you for them taters, and you'll have to stand him a pint afterwards,' she explained, counting out four coppers and handing them to Bliss. "'Only one pint, mind!' "'Don't stay about, cause there's another job or two to be done afore dark.' Bliss raised his hat politely. "'I will be back promptly, madam,' he promised as he drove off, leaving her staring after him open-mouthed. Bliss carried out his instructions, and delivered the potatoes at an establishment of similar character to Mrs. Mott's, but smaller.' When the last sack had been emptied and weighed, he was promptly conducted to an adjacent public house by a malodorous individual who, in the intervals of assuaging his thirst, stared at his companion and muttered incoherent expressions under his breath. On the return to the scene of his labours, Bliss found Mrs. Mott entertaining a small company of neighbours, to whom she was explaining the circumstances connected with Mr. Mott's hurried disappearance. She introduced Bliss with a slightly self-conscious air. "'This is the new young man,' she announced. "'I've had to get in someone, for I couldn't go up to market myself or drive the pony round.' "'Not to be thought of, dear,' murmured one of her sympathisers. "'Came to me from the Labour Bureau,' 
Mrs. Mott continued, a little truculently, affecting not to notice a sly wink from her next-door neighbour. "'And a very civil-spoken and well-meaning young man he seems to be. Anyway, I'm going to give him a trial.' Bliss, aware that he was the subject of some mirthful conversation, hurried off into the yard. Mrs. Mott sought him out presently. "'They've got over me.' she declared. I'm going to change my things, take a fish supper, and do a picture palace with them. It's not every night as I make so free, but it's lonesome sitting by oneself. If you'd care, she went on a little hesitatingly, to come along. If I am to be at Covent Garden at four o'clock with the notes you've given me, he interrupted, I'd like, if I may, to get a little sleep early tonight. Besides, I shall have to go as far as St. Pancras, and explain to my landlady there that I shall not want the room any longer. "'And I'm not sure you ain't right,' Mrs. Mott agreed. "'We'll have an evening to ourselves, if you're so minded, later on in the week. There's your room in the back there, and if you're cold or uncomfortable, why, you shall come into the house, and that's all there is to say about it. She gave him a few more instructions with regard to the morning, and left him. Bliss made the best of his way back to his lodgings, and sought out Mrs. Heath. "'Got a job!' he announced triumphantly. A rare smile lit up her worn face. "'I'm so glad,' she said simply. "'I've got to live in,' Bliss explained, "'but of course I'll pay you a full week's rent.' instead of notice. But I wanted to know whether I could take my things away, or bring you the money next Saturday or Sunday. There's no week's rent for you to pay, nor nothing of the sort, Mrs. Heath declared warmly. I can let your room in five minutes, although I'm sorry you're going, Mr. Bliss. Can I help you put your things together, sir? It isn't five minutes' job, Bliss assured her, holding out his hand. "'You've been quite a friend to me. I shan't forget. Very likely I shall be back again before long.' "'There's always your room, sir, when it's convenient,' she promised. Bliss packed his few belongings and returned to Poplar. The house and shop were still in darkness. He climbed up into the loft where he was supposed to sleep, and by the light of a candle looked around him. The uninviting-looking bed, the absence of any washing utensils, the torn and filthy piece of linoleum upon the floor, its only covering, sickened him. He turned out again into the streets. For an hour or so he wandered aimlessly about. He seemed, just for that one evening at any rate, to have lost all consciousness of his own identity to have become, indeed, one of the waifs and toilers with whom he rubbed shoulders all the time. He felt the attraction of the gaily lit public houses, with their suggestion of warmth within. The boisterous chaff and shrill laughter of the hooligan girls he met, walking arm in arm past the picture palaces, even stirred him with some faint desire for adventure. He lost himself in the crowded thoroughfares, where he hardly heard a word of English, 
where sallow-faced stooping men passed by like yoke-bearing animals talking yiddish or russian where the women leered at him from dark mysterious side streets grimly fascinating in their suggestion of crime and mystery he felt the thrall of alien london something of the terror of it crept into his blood he seemed to be amongst a race beaten in a futile struggle towards humanity beaten back into the semblance of the animal even his miserable stable seemed like a refuge when at last he crept back to it and munched the food which he had bought that night he found no consolation even in the thought of the freedom which must some day be his over anxious not to be late it was only a little after three o'clock when bliss after that long drive through the emptying streets of london took up his appointed place in covent garden market the darkness was unbroken the lamps of the city were still throwing their lights on to the low-hanging clouds only once had bliss smiled since the wretched moment when he had struggled into his clothes and with blue fingers harnessed the pony and that was when seated upon the trolley he had driven his strange-looking equipage down Gracechurch Street, past the premises of his stockbrokers, whose strong coffers were laden with his securities, past the office of his solicitors, where black box after black box with his name on it lined the shelves. The depression of last night, however, still lingered. The sense of adventure which had sustained him at first had become curiously dormant the sordidness of poverty had caught him for the nonce in its toils he fastened the pony to a weight by one of the reins and crossing the street drank a cup of coffee at a stall the coffee was hot and strong and marvellously refreshing something like new life crept through his frozen veins he stopped to listen from afar came the sound of music. "'There'll be some of them swells round presently,' the storekeeper remarked. "'There's one or two of them never misses, night-balls, coming up to have a cup of my coffee.' "'Is it a fancy-dress ball to-night?' Bliss asked. The man nodded. "'They've been going up by yonder in streams,' he declared. All at a guinea a time, too. My word, there's money about, if one could only get hold of it. Bliss wandered back to his stand. Some vans were unloading round his trolley. One of the men, who recognised the pony, spoke to him. You'll be from old man Motts, he remarked. What's the good of coming here at this hour? Am I too early? Bliss asked. Ay, oh, a full hour the man replied we ain't got the stuff off yet bliss strolled away once more he filled his latest purchase a shilling pipe with the remnants of a pouch of tobacco and lighting it wandered through the shadowy streets and mysterious alleys a region which seemed always full of strange possibilities with time on his hands and no money for amusements it was amazing how his power of observation and general sensitiveness had developed. 
from under a tarpaulin-covered cart he caught suddenly a delicious wave of perfume and he drew a little nearer to find it heaped with clusters of pinky mauve and white lilac a little farther on across the garbage of the street from which recesses of the covered market came the sweet but almost overpowering odour of violets an odour which reminded him for the moment of a violet farm he had once seen at Hyers. then a drunken man whipping a tired horse made the place hideous with his string of oaths two hooligans pelting each other with onions closed abruptly in a fiercer struggle bliss passed on into one of the quieter byways and stood there listening to the faraway tumult watching the fading glow pass away from the clouds suddenly he gave a little start round the corner of the street a dark figure had come into sight the figure apparently of a youth running with his head thrown back his face ghastly white under the lamp as he passed his knees seemed to be shaking he threw up his arms as though about to fall then with a final effort he zigzagged across the street and crept in under a pile of tarpaulin covers which had been left near one of the stalls he disappeared there barely a dozen yards away from the spot where bliss was standing the tarpaulin was still quivering indeed when his pursuers raced into sight they came down the street fleet-footed still fresh and strong they pulled up short by bliss one was dressed in the uniform of a commissionaire the other two were in evening dress and with a little start bliss recognized them both one was a man about town an acquaintance of a short time ago a man who had the reputation of being an adventurer but against whom nothing definite was known his companion a wealthy brewer's son from the provinces a frequenter of the west end bars and restaurants anyone pass this way the commissionaire asked breathlessly bliss shook his head uh, i've only just come round the corner myself which corner bliss pointed they dashed across the street in the opposite direction he heard them shouting as they turned into the broader thoroughfare heard a growing tumult of voices and the blowing of a police whistle the street was now empty he crossed the road and made his way toward the pile of tarpaulin as he approached it it quivered slightly he looked around to be sure that no one was watching then he pulled it on one side get up he said i've sent them the other way tell me what is it all about his first impressions were only of the face delicate and oval ghastly in its whiteness and a pair of great brown eyes staring terrifyingly then the figure slowly scrambled to its feet my god bliss exclaimed you're a woman she clutched at his hand although she was still crouching he could see that she was dressed in the black velvet doublet and black silk stockings of a page she had apparently been wearing a cloak the silver fastenings of which hung from her shoulders save me she faltered what have you done he asked she shook her head save me she begged you will 
He looked at her costume, absurdly conspicuous, but the frozen terror in her face checked his further questioning. "'I'll do what I can,' he replied shortly. "'You can't move from here as you are. Get underneath that tarpaulin again. There'll be no one round these stalls until four o'clock. I'll go back and fetch my overcoat.' She crept back under her shelter. At the last moment she cast a timid glance at him. "'You'll come back!' she moaned. "'Yes, I'll come back,' he assured her. He made his way to where his trolley was standing. It was still too early for business, and the place was almost deserted. Everyone seemed to have followed the little crowd of people who had collected at the corner of Bow Street. "'What's up?' he asked one of the porters who was unloading. "'Dunno,' the man answered. "'There were three chaps come past here, bellowing as hard as they could. Quarrel up at the ball, I reckon. They eats too much.' them folks, and they drinks too much, and then they quarrels. Serve em blooming well right. Bliss took the nose-bag from his pony and mounted the seat of his trolley. "'You off?' the porter asked. "'I'm only going to drive around for a bit,' he replied. He walked the pony up the hill, and, by a roundabout way, reached the heap of tarpaulin. One or two people were passing, so he waited a moment under the pretext of lighting his pipe. Then he slipped softly to the ground. "'Come,' he said. "'There's no one looking.' She crept out, and he threw his coat over her. Taking his cap from his head, he handed it to her. "'Throw that hat of yours away,' he directed, "'and pull this well over your eyes. There's only one thing I can do for you. You can sit by my side here.' in that overcoat, and I can drive you anywhere you like that won't take me more than twenty minutes. That's the best I can promise you. I've got my job here to see to." Her icy cold fingers clutched at his hand. "'It won't take longer than that,' she gasped. "'Quickly, please!' Bliss took his place upon the driver's seat and helped her up. She was trembling all over. He buttoned the overcoat up to her throat and pulled the cap over her forehead. "'Which way?' he asked. "'Along the strand,' she begged. He whipped up the unwilling pony, and threaded his way through the maze of farm wagons, which were now arriving every few moments down at last into the strand. She gave a little gulp of relief when they were clear of the labyrinth. "'Straight on,' she faltered. She sat there, leaning a little forward, the overcoat buttoned up to her throat, the cap pulled over her eyes, her face shrouded and invisible. She motioned with her hand along Pall Mall, and directed him up St. James's Street. They crossed Piccadilly and turned into Berkeley Square. Still she motioned him onwards. "'If it's much farther,' he remarked, "'I'm afraid I shall get into trouble.' They were at the corner of Grosvenor Square when she stopped him. "'Let me get down by that lamppost,' she directed. "'You see?' In the middle of the square a little procession of motor-cars was waiting. The lights were flashing from the house towards which she pointed, and a striped canopy ran down to the edge of the pavement. "'Tell me your name,' she whispered hoarsely. "'Your name?' "'Bliss,' he answered. "'Ernest Bliss.' "'And your address?' 
she continued quickly. "'I shall remember it. Tell me.' He hesitated for a moment. "'One hundred and sixty-eight Crumno Street, Poplar.' She nodded. Suddenly she gripped his hands. "'Good-bye,' she faltered. "'But—thank you—oh, thank you!' End of chapter 10